Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at this whole notion of the rapture and the day of the Lord now, coming up in um, verses 13 here in 1 Thessalonians 4, and working our way partway through chapter 5. I don't know how far we'll get tonight, but this is a real important um, section of scripture to go over, so we'll see how far we go. Father, thanks for this night and for the opportunity to open the word. I pray that you teach us now in this hour together. Thank you for your grace in Christ's name. Amen. Um, of all the passages in the New Testament having to do with the rapture, this is most this is the probably the definitive one. Um, when we talk about the rapture, everybody knows what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, the coming of Christ for the church. And uh, there's a lot of arguments on this. We're going to look at some of them here, whether it's pros, p, pre, mid, ah, partial, whatever. Um, there's all different kinds of spins on this whole doctrine. But the basic line is, what we know from this passage, Christ is coming again for his church. And uh, this is the definitive passage on that. Um, some other passages dealing directly with the rapture that you might want to look at is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting right around verse 50-58. There's one in uh, Philippians um, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. There's one in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, basically. Those are the, really the, the rapture passages. And there's a veiled rapture passage in John chapter 14 where Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I'll come again. Um, but these are, the, these are the major rapture passages. And of all these, the first Thessalonians um, passage here in 4.13 through 18 is really the definitive passage on this. Let's see what Paul writes. He says, But I would not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not, will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet in the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Um, this is a description of this time when Christ comes for his church. Now, the reason that Paul wrote this, um, and we piece this together by studying 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is uh, evidently what had happened is Paul had taught them quite a bit on this coming time when Christ would come for the church when he was with them. And between the time that he was with them and the time he is writing this, some of the believers in Thessalonica had died. And the question that they had is, what happens to them? Did they miss the rapture altogether? Um, are they going to miss this great event of Christ's return? And also, what had evidently happened is that there was great confusion, not only on this particular topic here, but the day of the Lord. This is in chapter 5, where Paul talks about the day of the Lord, and we're, we'll define that a little bit more um, deeply here in a couple minutes. Um, but we know this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul writes to them, this is a, and by the way, he wrote 2 Thessalonians not too long after 1 Thessalonians. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. Um, evidently, someone had passed on the notion that the day of the Lord had already come and they were in it. And there was a lot of confusion about that, because if they were in the day of the Lord, their question is, well, what happened to the coming of Christ? 
because um, Paul taught us that Christ was going to come back for us and then the day of the Lord. Well, if we're in the day of the Lord, then what happened? Did we miss something? Um, did it happen and we, we just, Christ forget about us? And there was great confusion on this, great, and they were greatly troubled by this whole notion. Um, so as we sort this out, you need to understand what Paul's trying to do here is not give a theology of the end times as a blow-by-blow, blow, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Rather, he's trying to comfort some people that were really shaken up, thinking that somehow they had missed this whole rapture and were actually in the day of the Lord. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. So the first question that Paul deals with, and this is the 413 through 18 passage that he's working on, is, is the issue here is what about believers who have died? What about them? Um, and we know that he's talking about the idea of death here because to the Christian, death is falling asleep. You know, This is not, well, what about the people that fell asleep during the sermon this morning? Are they going to miss the rapture? No, that's not the point. The point is, what about those who have fallen asleep? And, uh, for example, in Acts 7, 60, um, Stephen is said to have fallen asleep. When he was stoned to death, he fell asleep. Um, when Christ showed up and raised that little girl in Joppa, he said, she's not dead, she just is asleep. All right? Because of the Christian, death is a temporary thing. It's falling asleep. Um, and it's referring, of course, to the body. Um, death is just temporary for us. And so what Paul is talking about here is, what about the people who have died? What happened to them? What is going to happen to them? Are they going to miss this grand event of Christ coming again. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant and sorrow as others who have no hope. Hope in what? Well, the world has no hope. When somebody dies and you're, if you're an atheist and somebody dies, what hope is there? They're gone. I mean, that's it. You'll never see them again. That's the end. They're back to wherever they came from. And, and there, since there's no life after death, they just cease to exist in the atheistic viewpoint. Um, I want you to sorrow as others who have no hope. Um, the idea there is not, and I think you need to be careful with this, it's not wrong to sorrow, but you don't want to sorrow as others who have no hope. I mean, if somebody dies that we're close to, if a spouse or a child or a parent dies, of course there's sorrow. But it's not a final sorrow in the sense, well, we'll never see him again. Because to us, it's only a temporary parting. You see, you know, even though it might last 50 years, it's still temporary as far as eternity is concerned. And he says, I don't want you to be sorry and sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, there's, there's a tremendous amount of theology in that verse there, verse 14. Um, the idea there of if is not uh, if and maybe it will happen, but since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And I think this goes back to this whole notion in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the earlier section of the chapter there, talks about this whole thing, that to the believer, everything we have is based on the resurrection of Christ. All of our hope, everything is based on that. Paul says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, our faith is vain, our religion is vain. You're miserable. Um, we are of all men to be pitied if Christ is not risen again from the dead. Because, um, and, and I think this is one of the, when people talk about, well, what is the fundamentals of the faith? This is one of them. The resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Christ is not risen from the dead, what does that mean about the sacrifice that he made? didn't mean anything. Um, Christ's resurrection was the stamp of God that proves that his death was salvific. It provided salvation. It was the stamp of God. Had he not risen from the dead, he would be just another one of the Buddha or Confucius or whatever, just another religious leader. And Paul is saying that since Christ died and rose, then God is going to bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Not everybody who's, who's dead will come, but just those who 
are in Christ. Why? Because their resurrection is predicated on Christ's resurrection. And they're not lost. The point is, they're not lost. Someday they will rise again. So they're not going to be missed. It's not like God missed them. God missed them. Now, I think what's inherent here, what I think a lot of people miss, misunderstand, is that the reason this was such a, a troublesome to them is if they had been taught, if somebody had told, you know, you're in the day of the Lord, then that, by implication that means they missed what? The rapture. And by implication that means what happened to those who died? They may still be dead, or, or God forgot them, or God messed up, or, or what's going on here? What happened to the resurrection? Where is all that? This is the confusing part to them. Because they, I think they had been taught very clearly by Paul, you have this, this, this catching away of the church, and then you have the day of the Lord, followed by the reigning of Christ in the millennium. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll flesh that out. But it was such a concern to them because... They're saying, well, if, if Christ has already come back, then my loved ones must not have been saved. They must not be Christians. They, you know, there's a great confusion about that, and they were really tore up about it. And Paul wants to, wants to straighten that out. For this we say to you, verse 15, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or dead. If we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord for his church, we're not going to go ahead of those who are already dead. Rather, they're going to rise first. So, I mean, God's not going to miss them. They're going to come with him, as it says here, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And uh, it's interesting because the, um, we're going to talk about one of the rapture positions, the pre-wrath. Anybody know who Marvin Rosenthal is or heard of him? He was friends of Israel for a long time. He's got a new spin called the pre-wrath, rapture of the church. And uh, their whole notion is that um, this idea of imminency is, is a bogus doctrine. And what I mean, the, the doctrine of imminency basically says that Christ could come back at any time. There's nothing, there's no event that has to occur yet before he can come back. He's imminent. He can come back tomorrow. He can come back tonight. He can come back in the next five minutes. Nothing's keeping him away. It's not like there's great um, uh, prophetic truths that need to be fulfilled before he comes back yet. And what they do is they want to trash this whole idea of the doctrine of the imminency. Well, the question I would have to ask is, what did Paul just say here? If those of us who are alive, who's the us? Well, he's part of the us, right? So what did he expect, potentially? Come at any time. He could come at any time. He could come in my lifetime. The early church looked for this. All right? See, what Marvin Company says is, no, this doctrine of eminency is not right because see, before Christ can come back for his church, you've got to have um, the sun, moon, and stars darken, like it says in Revelation. You've got to have the, the, the unveiling of the Antichrist. You've got to have the first four seals, he says, have to be open, blah, 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 blah. And I want to ask him, well, Paul here, just reading this, seemed to feel that he could have been alive at the time that Christ came back. The entire church lived in expectation of this. I mean, in 1 John, the passage here in 1 John, chapter 3, John is writing to them, he says, uh, you know, when Christ appears, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And if you have this hope, you're going to purify yourself. The commandment there was you need to be pure because Christ could show up at any time. There, there's nothing that has to be done before he can come back. And Paul at least here saw the potential, at least, that he could come back in his lifetime. Paul did not say, well, if, as soon as all of these prophetic pictures are done, then he can come back. They lived in light of that. All the New Testament church, they lived in the expect, expectancy of the Lord's soon return. They didn't sit back and say, well, you're, he's not coming for 2,000 years, so we'll just sort of hang loose. No, to them, he could come back at any time. Revelation was the last book written. Yeah, Revelation was written 96 A.D., somewhere around in there. Um, this book here, First Thessalonians, was written 
somewhere in the AD 51, 52 time frame. So it's about 45 years later. The notions aren't mutually exclusive. That they wouldn't have had the benefit mm -hmm. of some prophecy. No, they wouldn't, but they had... Neither, is, neither goes against Christ's saying, mm -hmm. I'll come as a thief in the night. Right. You're supposed to live your life as if I'm coming tomorrow. Right. The revelation's there for a reason. Mm -hmm. But it, I don't think either does. Yeah. The question is, what, what when you look at this whole issue here, okay, and, and this is this is where the fight is, and it, and I'll tell you what, I give you websites where each side calls the other a bunch of bleeding heretics. I, I get tired of listening to it. But you have what I believe is the rapture and the revelation, which are two separate events. Now they say, well, this rapture is just a fictitious thing dreamed up by some guy last century kind of stuff. And my, my answer to that is, I'm not, I'm not as concerned about where it came from or when it was found out, but does it square with Scripture? That's the issue to me. That's the issue. Because, you know, we get the idea that everybody back in the first century were theologians. You know, they had to work a lot of this. You look back in church history, they had to work Christology out. Remember, we talked about Christology. It took them, what, four or five centuries to figure out who Christ was you know, to, to, to work through that doctrine. Um, so I'm not as much interested as, well, you know, this is a late doctrine kind of thing. That's one of the big arguments. I'm more concerned about, does it square with Scripture? And when I look at Scripture, I see passages that tell me Christ can come back as, it says, a thief in the night. Um, he can come back to receive me up into the clouds to meet him in the air. All right? Um, and then there are other things that know he's coming down to the earth with all the saints in glory. And as you start putting all that together, you say, well, there's got to be two events. Because you can't have the same event be both. I can't go and meet the Lord in the air and be with him and at the same time be coming down at the millennium to, to start. The, you can't have both. So there's got to be a gap. I, I really think the post-tribulational view is really untenable. Because of that, I mean, you just there's just too many bad reasons, or, or well, bad reasons they have for it. There's got to be two different events here, all right. And I think the idea of well, the doctrine of imminency um, refers not to I think the second piece, but to the first piece. All right, are there any signs given us to the rapture? Well, there isn't any, but there are signs given to the revelation. So when you start looking at, you know, the sun, moon, and stars darken, et cetera, et cetera, that's not referring, I think, to the first piece. It's referring to the second piece. All right? That's, that's, this is where the signs are. Now, as you look here, I mean, let's just finish this, this few verses, and we'll go and look at these rapture things. It says here, For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, again, there's that we, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So at this particular event, where are we meeting the Lord? We're meeting not on the earth, but in the air. But now if you go to Matthew, and you look at Matthew 24, when Christ comes back, this, the believers alive at that time, where do they meet him? On the earth. So, that, so it's two different things we're talking about. Now, I think a lot of confusion comes in when, it, when they take Matthew 24 and 25 and say, well, see, that's the church. And I've heard that, and I want to cringe when I hear that. Because if you've not been exposed to Matthew 24 and 25, it's the Olivet Discourse. And the question is, well, is that replying to the church? I've heard sermons, for example, preached on, um, well, you got two women in the field, one taken and one left. Well, the one taken is raptured, the one left is going through the tribulation. And the two men in the field, one's raptured out, one's left in the field. No. That's backwards. The one taken is taken in judgment. The one left is left to enter the kingdom. As the days of Noah were, so it shall be in the, the coming of the Son of Man from the Days and they were in the days of Noah, they're eating, drinking, marrying, giving a marriage till the day Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and took them all away. Who got taken away? The unbelievers. They're the ones taken away, not, not the believers. 
Now, what Marvin Company does is they flip it around, saying the ones who were taken away were Noah, but that's not what it's saying there. Why? Well, yeah, the pre-wrath one. The pre. The reason I say that is because they're really putting a push on this thing, and uh, they're they're. Oh, well, these these guys are really vocal about this, you know. Um, if you want to look at it, look up um, www. Got sign. I think it's sign ministries. There it is. Signministries.org. Um, they have a website out there, pre-wrath position, and and they're really vocal about this. I mean, they are they are vehement about this, and and, and pretty much almost relegate anybody who who would dare believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, just an idiot. I mean, a lot of a lot of posturing in their writings. They're premillennial. Here's here's the positions. Um, here's 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 the positions. Um, a little chart of them. If you have the tribulation here, and here's the millennium. And by the way, anybody who believes in a rapture believes in the millennium. All right. So that's a that's a moot point. But you have your post tribulationists here. And they say what happens is Christ comes for us after the tribulation. Now there's a lot of reasons that's just a dumb idea. First of all, you've got living people going into the millennium. Who's living if you're raptured right before it? There isn't anybody left to go in. You're all in glorified bodies. Um, there is no people to inhabit and procreate during the millennium. All right. Lot, and, and how do you go up and come back down? It's kind of senseless. Um, I, I really don't think this is tenable at all. Um, and then on the other end of this end of it, you have the premillennialists or pre-tribulationists. They believe that Christ comes before the tribulation starts at all. The tribulation being a seven-year period. Now the way I'm going to draw this is I'm going to draw this like this. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to imply a break in between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. Only because there's no reason to say that there cannot be a break. Because what event starts the tribulation? What's the event? Not the breaking of the seals, the signing of the treaty, remember? Antichrist is going to confirm the covenant with many for one week. The signing of the peace treaty by the, between Antichrist and Israel, that is the official start of the tribulation, not the rapture of the church. So if that starts it and the rapture is before that, then there, there, there could be. I mean, there may not be. It may be an hour, maybe a day, maybe a week. We don't know. But I don't think it's going to be years and years. But there could be a small gap in there. But you can argue that point. But the pre-tribulations would say, no, Christ comes back for his church prior to the start of the, of the tribulation. And then you have some people who are the mid-tribulationists. They believe that Christ comes for us in the midpoint. Um, what they would do is they, they really use the seventh trumpet business and all of that to try and prove their point. The seventh trumpet being the last trumpet mentioned here, that's when we go up kind of thing. Um, but they're, they're the midpoint. And they say, because the reason they say that it's because what is the characteristic of the first part of the tribulation? What's the characteristic on the earth? War or peace? Peace. peace. Great peace. I mean, there, there are going to be people saying, we finally have the peace we've been looking for. I mean, it's going to be a golden day for man, really. And this is when all hell breaks loose over here in the second peace. And so what they do is they say, well, we go through the peaceful part. We're taken out before God's wrath falls. All right, then there's another group called the partial, and this is really, I, I don't think, I can't think of anyone that really buys into this much anymore. But the whole notion of the partial is only people who are ready and looking for Jesus get to go up, the rest of you stay here. So if you're looking and expecting Christ's return, you're living a godly life, etc., then when Christ comes back, you get to go up in the rapture. If you're living an ungodly life or you're at a movie, or God forbid you're someplace you shouldn't be, you're left behind, and you go through it. All right. So the partial is, and I think that's really an untenable, because what have you not done to the body of Christ? Well, you split it up. I think you've confused 
um, works with grace. I mean, just a lot of nasty things. And they try to prove this by, uh, for example, they go to the parable of the ten virgins and say, well, look, you know, five of them got in, five got left out. So only the ones who are ready got, got raptured. Well, that's not what the tribula that parable is saying at all. Um, by the way, just as an aside, the parable of the ten virgins has nothing to do with the rapture. It has everything to do with Christ's second coming at the end of the tribulation. Who gets to go into the marriage supper with the groom? Well, the people who are ready. All right, by the way, where's the bride in the parable? doesn't talk about her, does it? But who is the bride? Yeah, we're the bride. The church is the bride. Um, and what Christ is doing there, he's using something that they understood. The way the marriage ceremony worked is that you would become betrothed, and then when the day came for your actual marriage, the, the, the man would go and get his bride-to-be. They would proceed through the city and you know all this dancing and all the celebration, go back to his father's house where they would then have the marriage feast. And along the way, the people who would come on are the people who were part of the wedding party, the, 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 the virgins, which were probably the attendants of the, of the bride, etc., they would go with them. And the thing is that they're the ones that are at the bride's house. And they got to go through the streets rejoicing. They go into the marriage feast, and the other five virgins show up, and they say, let us in, and say, well, who are you? They weren't ready. And the point there is, I think, and this is Alan. You ever hear the marriage supper of the Lamb? If you talk about the marriage supper, the marriage feast, and you think, well, we're sitting down at this big banquet table and gorge ourselves or whatever. I think, personally, my best understanding is the marriage feast is referring to this, the millennium. That is the marriage feast. It's just a reference to the millennium. The parable of ten virgins. Who got to go into the marriage feast? Well, the ones who were ready. On um, the parable of the marriage of the king's son, remember the, the, the um, king had this big banquet for his son, and, and that was a picture of the people who were invited but didn't want to come to the marriage, but then some did. Yeah, they had all these excuses, and those who wanted to come came, and the rest of them were cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's a picture of hell. All right, they weren't ready. They didn't get to go into the feast. And then you have the other parable of the, of the great supper, where the man made a great supper, invited the guests to come, and they made all these excuses. And he says, you know, in the kingdom, and he relates it right there, in the kingdom, there are going to be people coming from the east and the west and sit down with the son of the kingdom, but the children of the kingdom will be cast out. And there he equates the supper with the kingdom. So I personally think the best picture is the marriage feast has to do with the millennium. And that would fit the picture, the picture language where Christ comes for his bride and they go into the marriage feast, the millennium. And those who are ready go in. Those who are not are missed. They miss out on it. But that's, the, that's, that's an aside. We're getting a lot of territory here. The partial, just say only if you're ready you get to go up. The rest of you got to stay here and go through it. Um, and then there's Marv. And Marv came along and said, nah, all you guys are wrong. You're a bunch of heretics. It's pre-wrath. And the way he does that is he defines the last half of the last half of the tribulation as being the day of the Lord. And, it's, and the day of the Lord to him is defined as a time when God pours out his wrath on unrepentant men. And he makes good arguments, and, and some of them are pretty good, that God's wrath is not poured out on the believer. And I would agree with that. All right? But what I would say is the day of the Lord is not just that period. The day of the Lord is that whole period. The day of the Lord, I think, not only includes the entire tribulational period, but it also includes the end of the, uh, the end of the millennium. And I get that if you go over to First Peter chapter three. It says, "The day of the Lord in the day of the Lord, the um, elements will melt with fervent heat; the earth and all that's in it will be burned up." Well, does that happen here? No, that's talking about the end of the millennium. Well, God erases the current universe and starts over again, all fresh. All new. 
and he erases it by just allowing it to go back to the nothingness it came from. And he starts over again. So a lot of Marvin's arguments hinge on this day of the Lord business. And he tries to make a real big point that now it's only the last half of the last half, and the day of the Lord starts with some specific signs. And, he, and I have a chart here that lists them. And on my website, you can get them as well. By the way, the website is really making some good progress. And the notes of this is out there now in PDF format. So you can go out and pull them down and print them, and they'll look really nice. But uh, he, he does a lot of work to try and make that be the last half of the last half. And then his argument is, since we are taken out prior to the day of the Lord, when do we get raptured? Well, here. And then he says, you've got to understand that the first half of the tribulation is not God's wrath on man. It's man's wrath on man. It, it's man's wrath. It's not God's wrath. It's man's wrath, which I think is a false argument. I mean, when I look at, at God talking about the, you know, the, the first four seals, he says basically the first five seals are man's wrath on man, not God's wrath on man. First five seals. Seal number one, the rider on a white horse, peace. Seal two, the rider on a, what, a red horse, war. And then famine, and then pestilence and death, and then martyrdom. And he says all of these are man's wrath on man, not God's wrath on man. And the sixth seal is the, is the signs in the heaven. And then the seventh seal is when God starts pouring his wrath out in the trumpet and the bowl judgments. But until then, God's not pouring out his wrath. So what he says is the church is not subject to God's wrath, but it certainly is to man's wrath. So we get to go through this. In their viewpoint, we get to go through this part, this time of tribulation, in that, in that, that pre-wrath viewpoint. And the reason I say pre-wrath is because this, this is pretty vocal out there. And this was the position of the early church, and on and on. You know, anybody doesn't believe this is a heretic. And then they go and they basically, and I have it, they say, you know, if you're a pastor of a church and you don't believe this and you tell your people that they're really coming out before the tribulation, then you're responsible for all the people that get martyred under the Antichrist. It's your fault they got martyred because you didn't teach the Bible correctly. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just that kind of... Like you're supposed to change the it's that thud. Yeah, it, that, see, that really upsets me when they do that. Um, you know, because if you're a weak-minded pastor or you've not studied this, I mean... It's not that you're weak-minded, but you've not really studied through this. You're scared to death. You mean God's going to hold me accountable for all my people that die under the Antichrist if I don't teach this spin? You know, it's, it's, it's in, in the industry, it's called FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And the more FUD you can stir up, the better off you are. And they, they just make a lot of posturing-type arguments along this line. But these are the basic positions. Now, why is it that I would fall into the pre-tribulational pre position. Well, there's a lot of good reasons for that. There's a ton of them, in fact. Um, I, have a, I have a bunch of them written down in the um, appendices you can get off the internet. But uh, also, uh, yeah, let's just throw all the papers all over the floor. But um, there, there's a lot of good reasons for that. First of all, Let's go about this backwards. Why is it that, for example, the partial is bad? Well, you split the body of Christ into two pieces. All right. And, and, and also the question is, what, what, why is there a tribulation? What is it for? Who's it for? Israel. It's not for the church. Remember back Daniel's 70 weeks? Anybody remember 70 weeks? We had 69 of them that's already happened. What about number 70? Who's that for? That's not for the church. That's for Israel. Um, and I think that the scripture makes a very clear distinction between Israel and the church. They're not the same. Now, in this age of grace, if a Jew becomes a believer, is he a Jew or a part of the church? Well, he's part of the church. But there's two distinct peoples of God, the Israel and the church. There is a distinction. And Paul draws that distinction in Romans 11. He says the, you know, the, the time of the Gentile, the, see, he talks, until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled, Israel, Israel is blinded 
until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. This is the time of the Gentiles. And, but there's coming a day when the blinders will be removed and they will see again. Um, so I, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, why would God split the church into two pieces, take one to heaven and leave another piece here? That doesn't make any sense. Um, the mid-tribulational view is the same thing. I think when I look at partial, mid, pre-wrath, post, all of them go back to ask the question, what is the purpose of the tribulation? What is the purpose? The purpose is not to purify the church. The purpose is to bring Israel to repentance. That's the purpose. And, and for God to pour out his wrath on the earth on sinful man. And as you look through the Bible, you find out something very interesting. Before God's wrath has fallen, what has he done to the believer? What's he done? Well, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Before God rained fire and brimstone, what did he do? Got Lot out of there, right? Had to get Lot out. Before God drowned the earth with water, what did he do? Put Noah in a boat. Yeah, before God's wrath has fallen, he has taken his people out. The believer's out. This is a time of God's wrath. Um, so it goes back to the nature of the tribulation. Why is it? Why is the tribulation there? It's for the Jew. Um, also, as you start looking through the through this thing, uh, one of the I had to laugh. I almost fell out of my chair. One of the big arguments that Marv came up with on the pre-wrath position is that. How is the church going to prove their love for Christ unless they go through this time of tribulation? All right. Now, that's sort of nonsense to me. All right. Because what I want to ask him, I say, you know, I want to ask Marv, Marv, do you love your wife? Well, I absolutely. He said, well, then why don't you put your wife through a time of great trouble and trial and tribulation so she can prove to you that she loves you? Because how do you know she loves you? Now, no man's going to do that. That's silly. That's stupid. You're not going to allow your wife to, to face trials or, or, or any, I mean, any harm or anything if you can help it. What's this thing about Christ saying, well, I want to see if the church loves me, so I'm going to put them through the worst time of history that has ever happened in the world just to see if they love me or not. That's a nonsense argument. That's a nonsense argument. Here's another one. As you look at Revelation, you read the book of Revelation, you find the church in the first three chapters, and then it doesn't appear again until number 19. So my question is, if I'm going to go through the tribulation and the book of Revelation is written about the tribulation, why didn't he say anything to me? Why didn't he talk about the church? We're not there, I don't think. I mean, some of this goes back to, I, I, in, in a hermeneutics class I taught the Bible how to interpret the Bible, the Holy Spirit could have said it if he wanted to, hermeneutic. All right. In other words, God is not into confusing the Word. He's not trying to hide his truth and trick us into thinking something that's not right. God wants us to understand the Bible a whole lot worse than we want to understand it. And he's not going to hide his truth. And, and what, the reason that's important is, that, is if the church was going to go through the tribulation, if we're going to face the persecutions of the Antichrist and all of that, why in the world doesn't the New Testament tell us how to do that? Or why doesn't it even talk about it? What, what are we constantly told to look for? What's our hope? What are we looking for? Christ. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. Paul, yeah, I mean, even in Thessalonians, we say, and to wait for his son from heaven. We're not waiting for the Antichrist to show up. We're waiting for Christ to show up. All right? And that's the blessed hope. We're not looking... You know, I mean, if we were looking for the Antichrist, the New, Te New Testament should teach us now, you've got to look for this guy who's going to be really bad. And when he comes, you've got to rejoice because Christ is going to come shortly thereafter. The Holy Spirit could have told us that. and would have solved, It would have erased this whole argument. Would have, we wouldn't be writing all these books and arguing about all of this stuff. It would have been just so clear and so simple. But he didn't. We're told to look for Christ, not Antichrist. God calls his ambassadors on before he declares war. What do you do when you declare war on a nation? Call home the ambassadors. 
What are you? You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. God calls you home first. I think uh, another reason for the pre-tribulation is there's a clear distinction between church and Israel. And that's a no-brainer. You just need to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 to see that. They're not the same entity. Now, the covenant theology people make them the same. That's like R.C. Sproul and company. To them, we are Israel. The church has taken over Israel. You know, they've been set aside forever. God will never deal with them again. They also don't believe in the millennium because they say Christ just comes back, sets up the eternal state, and that's the end of things. So they erase that. Remember we talked about the whole covenant theology and all of that? But there's a clear distinction. The tribulation is Daniel's 70th week. Remember, God has determined 70 weeks to do what? For his people. Not for the church, for his people. And in Daniel's time, who are his people? The Jew. It's not for us. The whole character of the tribulation is Jewish. Um, it's interesting here that, that the whole tenor, and we'll see this when we get to 1 Thessalonians 5, the whole um, tenor of that chapter is that Paul is saying, you know that I don't have to tell you about the times and the seasons, for you know that the day of the Lord will not come, unless there's a falling away first. And, and what he's doing there is he's saying, the day of the Lord, and then later on he says that we, we're not of those that that day should overtake us. We're children of the light, not children of the dark. We don't belong to this time of God's judgment on the world. No, that day's not going to overtake us because we're children of the light. It's not going to take us by surprise. And then uh, you have to ask yourself, well, when does the judgment seat of Christ take place? It's got to happen sometime. And when does it happen? Well, probably during this time of tribulation, we are judged according to our works and given reward. And what is part of our reward? It's reigning with Christ in the millennium. That's part of it. We get positions of authority, five cities, two cities, one city, whatever. And then the biggest question is, if we're told that Christ can come back at any point, then I know that this isn't right, because what I need to do when, I, when this... Uh, when Antichrist signs a treaty, I just got to start counting the days, right? I can be pretty close as to when the Lord comes back. So if, if I'm told that no man knows the day or the hour when Christ returns, and Christ returns somewhere in here, I'm going to know the day or the hour. And some people say, look, you can't know the day or the hour, but you can pick the week or the month or the year. No, that's a euphemism. The day or the hour means you just don't know the time. It's not that well, you can get the day or the week down, but you're not going to get the hour down. No, that's not what it's talking about. So when I start looking at all of this, I just see that, that, that I'm convinced that the Bible clearly teaches that the church, Christ comes back before it. Now, here's a question. How important is this doctrine? All right. I mean, do I split a church over this doctrine? Do I withdraw fellowship over this doctrine? No, I mean, I think it's important. But to sit here and say, you know, if you believe in, if you believe in the pre-wrath rapture, you're damned and on your way to hell on a heretic. I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to even do that to somebody who doesn't even believe in the millennium. Are you going to tell me R.C. Sproul's going to miss heaven because he doesn't believe in the millennium? No, I don't think so. Now, he's not going to realize his reward. He's going to be wrong about that. But, I mean, it's not, it's not a, a doctrine you kill over. But I think it is important. Are you going to say something? Yeah. But he has this whole idea that, that what happens, well, Marv says... If you don't believe in their position, this is going to take you by surprise. You're going to get killed by the Antichrist persecution blast. Well, I mean, all right, look, if, if I blow it in the next, if I know the Antichrist signs a treaty and I see it happen, I say, well, I guess I was wrong about the pre. I guess there's a time of great tribulation. All right, I can still prepare for it. It's not that I'm going to be martyred necessarily. The suggestion that came from our, like, like 
Yeah. I know I not take the mark of the beast, etc. I mean, I, I know all of that now. Just in, 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 in wrapping this whole thing up, the question comes in, well, what about Matthew 24 and 25? Because, I mean, everybody hightails it over. You've already there. Hightail it over to that passage and say, well, look, I mean, Christ is telling them, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee into the mountains and, and all this stuff. Well, here's a question to ask yourself at the very beginning of the passage. What did the disciples ask Christ? What's their question? They have a twofold question. When will these things be? So when? Actually, it's a threefold question. When will these things be? What will be the time of your coming and of the end of the age? All right. So they're asking him the question. What's this time, time of your coming of the end of the age? Now, you're a disciple, you're standing there talking to Christ. In your mind, what are you asking him? The end of the age, to a Jew, what did that mean? The end of this age is the beginning of the next age. And what's the next age to the Jew? The kingdom. Yeah, the kingdom. So they're asking, they're not asking, you know, Jesus, when he come back and rapture us? Because that was a foreign, they didn't understand that. Remember, Paul said it's a mystery. They didn't know that. They're asking him, when are you going to come and set up the kingdom? When are you going to establish the kingdom? That was the question. So what's Christ answering? Is he answering, when is this going to happen? No, he's answering when this happens when I'm going to set up the kingdom. And so the whole context of it is not church. It's Jew. It's a Jewish context. He's talking to the Jews. When you see the abomination of desolation, who's going to see that? Where do you have to be to see that? Jerusalem. I've heard Sproul espouse on, on the Allied Discourse. He believes that uh, that refers to 70 AD. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the... Yeah, that's the preterist. That's a standard preterist position, yeah. which, uh, yeah, which he and, he and I believe I got a website out there that says if you don't believe in that, you're a heretic. Right. All right. Um, the whole problem with, with Sproul in that is that he has to do some backflips and handsprings, because you've got this whole problem with what about the sun darkening, etc. What about the abomination that makes desolate? Um, and, and he points to what is it? He points to. Uh, what is it? What's that guy's uh, ancient guy? Flavius? Uh, Josephus. Josephus. And in, in one of his writings in there, talking about how the, how the, uh, the chariots in the sky and, and the sun darkening. He actually, he was in Josephus' writings, mm -hmm. which I found interesting. I, I was trying to look at it. I didn't find it myself. He claims that it's there. But they got the works of Josephus out on the internet. You probably do a word search and look it up. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, he, he has the standard preterist position that this is not referring to the end time, rather. And, and the same thing with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not referring to the future, rather it's referring to 70 AD, Roman Empire, etc., etc., etc. The problem with it is you take R.C. Sproul, and you take, you take 100 guys that believe in the preterist position, put them in, in 100 separate rooms, and tell them to tell you what Daniel means. They'll come out, at Daniel and Revelation, they'll come out with 100 different opinions. Sure. Because you, you, you've now removed the clear sense of Scripture. When it says a burning mountain was cast in sea, well, like, Pick something. You know, it could be anything now. Whereas, I think if you take it literally, what is that? Well, a meteor hits the ocean. I mean, that makes sense to me. We've seen Armageddon and whatever, uh, deep impact. And the problem is, and, and that's a real problem, I, I remember listening to John MacArthur teach through Book of Revelation, and he said he had read, like, I think it was 17 or 27 commentaries, I can't remember, it was, it was a good number, by uh, people who were of the amillennial persuasion. And he said he didn't find any of They didn't agree on anything. Because you've removed the whole basis for interpretation. Now it, it means whatever you want it to mean. How do you interpret uh, you know, the seven trumpets? How do you interpret... Uh, what they do is they take the millennium in, in Matthew or Revelation 20 and say, well, Satan's bound now. They, they believe that. I listened to them say, Satan at this moment is bound. And I say, hello... I mean, he doesn't look too bound to me. 
you know, and, and it goes back to some interpretation. Right. And, and what, what Marv does is he doesn't go that far, okay? But he does say that Matthew 24 and 25 is talking to us as a church, okay? And that's why he takes, for example, the parable of the fig tree, the parable of the wicked servant, the parable of Noah, and all that, and apply it to the church. That's all a church context. And he, comes, he does that, and he comes out of pre-Rather. David Hunt, another guy, takes it to the church and comes out of pre-Tribber. What I do is I say, that I think they both didn't, I just think neither one of them read verses 1 and 2. And 3, what did, Christ, what did the disciples ask Christ? We want to know when's the end of the age, and when are you going to set up this deal? I mean, that was their whole expectation, this messianic kingdom, fervor. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for some rapture. They didn't have any idea, a clue on that. They were looking for the establishment of the kingdom. And so what did Christ answer? The establishment of the kingdom. It had nothing to do with the rapture of the church. It's not there. Now some say, well, you've got to understand that the disciples were part of the church. When did the church get founded? When was the beginning of the church? What was the event that started the church? the day of Pentecost. When did the day of Pentecost happen? After Christ gave this message or before? After. What is the church? A mystery. It was not revealed. The church is not revealed in the Gospels. There's hints of it, but it, Christ did not come out and say, well, you got to understand, guys, you know, there's going to be 2,000 years before I come back, and it's going to be the church, and the Gentiles are going to be part of this deal. And They didn't understand that. That was, that was totally foreign to them. They were asking, when are you going to start the kingdom? That, that, and remember, when Christ rose again from the dead before his ascension, what did they ask him before he went up? You're going to restore, is, this, is it now? Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And Christ says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Rather, it's given to the Father. And then he had his ascension. So what does all that mean? So what are you trying to say? You're just saying the 24, 25 has to do with the the beginning of what the millennium starts. The the I beginning. think it has to do, yeah, it has to do with the, Christ has given us a characterization of the tribulation. And, and what you can do is you can map it pretty clearly to the, to, the, to the seals. Remember he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars? Well, seal number two. Then he says there's going to be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Well, there's three and four. You see him, they're delivering, they're going to deliver you over to be killed and to be die. Well, there's seal five. And then he says, and then the, he talks about the, dark, the, the wonders in heaven. Well, that's seal six. And it pretty closely follows the seals. But it's given to the Jews in a Jewish context. It's not given to the church. All right? They're told to flee into the mountains. All right? From what? From Antichrist. Well... I mean, that, that's, the, that's Israel. When you see the abomination of desolation, when you see this, go up into the mountains. So your point being is the church will be raptured pre-trib, and then the, the yeah. Jews are there for the tribulation. And, and what this happens is, is, what happens after the... First of all, are there any believers immediately following the rapture? No. Right. But there's going to be a, a great number converted. During that period. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> and those are who I think Christ is talking about. Yeah, Christ is not Christ is talking to the Jews there. And there's gonna be an innumerable company that can come to know Christ and be truly born again. And and those are the ones he's talking about. Now what Marv does, he says, Well, it says there, except those days should be shortened, none of the elect should be saved, and the elect is the church, therefore the church is there. No. The elect is not the church. Right. That, 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 that's, a, that's, a, that's a big logical, you know, you've got the elect, of the elect, you've got the church, you've got Israel. All right? You can't say all the church is the elect. I mean, the elect is all the church. The church is only a subset of the elect. The elect is just God's people, whether your church, Israel, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. All right? So he, he makes that false argument. But yeah, I think Matthew 24 and 25 is not referring to us. And by the way, um, as soon as my brother does it, there's a, I got a whole study on Olivet Discourse on, on the web. 
Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it's on there. It, oh, he's got all the PDF files. He's got to put the indexing together, but it is out there. It is out there. So, well, let's pick up with 1 Thessalonians 5 next week. Yeah, it's good. I went fast through that, but but study the um, study uh, Matthew 24 and 25, and I think it makes best sense in a Jewish context. The people that get taken away are taken away in judgment. The ones who remain get to enter the millennium. It's an interesting paradox that can still be applied to employment. Because when you look at the example you used mm-hmm. previously, you know, yeah. the law, again, it works both ways. Your legs are taken away, the law is taken away, mm-hmm. no one is taken up. If you apply to the church, we, we, we are taught to look the same way. Yeah. Well, I think. Yeah, but I think if you look at it, it says very clearly as in the the days of Noah, the, the end times will be like the days of Noah. The days of Noah, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. That's business as usual. Life as usual until the day the flood came and took them all away. Even so, one will be at two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken away. One left. So if you got taken away in the first case, referring to judgment, taken away in the second case should refer taken away in judgment. One left. So who does that apply to? That applies to the person alive during the tribulation. Yes, not to the church. It's tribulational context. And and, and that fits in not only with that. So those taken away during the tribulation are... This is at the the end of the tribulation. Yeah, this is referring to the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back. Who gets taken away? Now that fits if you say that in twenty in thirty one, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds. To when the white the rider on the white horse comes for the final. Yeah, they'll gather. They'll gather. He, he gathers elect. And if you go back, look at the parable of the dragnet. Remember the parable of the dragnet in, in Matthew thirteen. You get this big dragnet, and they pull up on shore, and they gather the good into vessels and throw the bad away. The parable of the tares, what happens? You gather the wheat into the barn, you burn the shaft. Even so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels out. They'll gather the elect into the barn, and the rest of them go where? Into hell. The lake of fire. Well, not the lake of fire. They go into hell. And and I think the best understanding is they're taken away in judgment. All right? And and it fits very well... uh, when Christ comes back, what about the parable of the talents? There, okay. Well, you got a guy. He has five talents, two talents, one. No, it's just yeah. This parable of the talents, five, two, one. Well, who gets to go into and, and share the joy of the Lord? Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Who gets to enter into the joy? Those who are faithful with what God has given them. The guy who hides the talent under a rock. What happens to him? It's taken away. And where does he go? Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, he misses the blessings of the Lord's kingdom. He, he's, he's cast out. The, the ten virgins, you got five that go into the feast, five are left out. And, and I think they're the ones that go to judgment. It just makes best sense to me. That's all I'm saying. It just makes. And there's, you know, I, I taught a 10-week series on that. So it's not, you know, it's hard to do it in 15 minutes. Sure. But, but think through it. Think through it. Because if it's not, if it's not talking to the Jew, then I'll tell you, we are, he is right, we are going through it. Mm-hmm. If that's talking to the church, we're going to be there. We're going to be there. And, and see, here's the whole idea with these illustrations. What Christ is saying is that I, when, when you see all of these things come to pass, you know that I am very near. And how near am I? Well, it's like a fig tree. When you see the leaves go forth, you know that summer is around the corner. It's like the days of Noah. You're going to be, some people are going to be caught unaware. It's like a, a, a thief who breaks into a house. He doesn't send, I'll be there at midnight tonight. Please not be there. Rather, he shows up when you least expect it. 
It's like virgins who are going to the feast, but some are ready, some aren't. They're going to be caught unaware. It's like a servant with talents, and his Lord comes back. Now's the time of reckoning. He's not ready. It's like the wicked servant who says the Lord delays his return, and he beats his fellow servants. Well, the Lord's going to come back and cut him in pieces. And Christ is trying to say, even during that time, you don't know the exact moment when I show up, so you better be ready. You better be ready when I come back. I think that's all. Because at the rapture, is the wicked servant going to be cut up into pieces? Yeah, he's going to be left here. He's not going to be cut into pieces. At the end of the tribulation, what happens if you're a wicked servant? You get cut into pieces. Mm -hmm. that's, I'm just saying that makes the most sense. But yeah. you've got you to study it. It's a paradox. It doesn't apply to the rapture. I mean, either way, it doesn't take away. Obviously. No, it doesn't take you're away. Like you're leading up. I mean, you still have to treat it the same. Yeah. All I'm saying is I am being warned of the same thing. Yeah. Hey, a whole lot of Christians are going to be surprised that when I come, you're not going to be ready. Either. Even even some believers will not be ready, but the believer goes to heaven. Right. You know they don't get thrown into they don't get thrown hand and foot and cast into outer right. darkness. You know all these nasty things happening here don't happen to them. You just got you got to think through it. It's it's that's not a simple thing. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this time and. Um, pray that you give us clarity of thought as we work through these issues. We just thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.